Good afternoon. It is Matt Weaver with BibleTruthProject.com. Welcome, friends. I'm happy to join you today. It's been several weeks since I've done a podcast. Perhaps someday in my life I'll actually be able to get something done weekly, but we'll see how that goes. I'm going to speak about something uh, today that I actually, several weeks ago, I, uh, I spoke at our church on a similar lines, and that is to do with the covenant. And I know I've spoken about covenants in other episodes as well, but I'm kind of perhaps coming from a different avenue. Uh, in the in the presentation I did at church, I kind of just grazed over some covenant aspects uh, and 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 really focused in on the concept, if I can say it that way, of covenant loyalty. You you see, in this the central theme of the Bible is covenant. That's the reason that God, in my understanding, that's one of the primary reasons that God gave us a Bible is so that we would understand his covenant promises. That's why the Old Testament is still relevant. That is why we consider it and look at it because God's covenant promises has not changed to the different people that he made covenant with. And there has been several covenants. And I have spoken about that in previous episodes but what I'm going to speak about today is perhaps a little bit different, and that is this idea of covenant loyalty. Um, I first ran across this word, chesed is the word, it's a Hebrew word, and uh, it can be kind of translated a lot of different ways. Faithfulness or obligated or steadfast, truth, goodness, mercy, you'll, you'll kind of see it translated a lot of different ways in uh, different Bible translations. Uh, but in the Tree of Life version, I noticed that it had said covenant loyalty, which was kind of a unique uh, twist. And it piqued my interest into kind of more what this word chesed means, uh, if I can say it that way. And so basically, I was, I was, you know, I did some research and listened to what people had to say about it. Uh, and, and really kind of allowed, you know, basically allowed the Lord to to show me kind of what his perspective is on this, if I can um, say it that way, basically. And, and what what I saw was this picture uh, of loyalty. First of all, you can look at it from man to God, or you can look at it from God to man. The reality is the covenant is between God and man. And God is a faithful covenant partner. Mankind has proven himself not to be. I think that's why Christians so often are so harsh on Israel, because Israel obviously failed in keeping up their end of the covenant. They broke the covenant. The Old Testament was clear about that. There was a breaking of the covenant judgment that also went with that. But does that mean, in, in our simple understanding, if I, if I can say it that way, we would simple simply think that, well, if it's broken, that means it's over. Well, that's actually not what the Bible says. and It, it says there'll be punishment for breaking the covenant, but it doesn't say... That the covenant ends. Uh, it's something I think we have to understand. It doesn't necessarily mean the covenant ends. The only way for a covenant to end in the biblical view of things, and it likens it somewhat to a marriage. In a marriage, you're not free from your covenant until one of the party has uh, died, in essence, if I can say it that way. Now, Obviously, when Israel defiled their covenant, they walked away from God. God had the right to actually judge them. To to first of all, in the seventy A.D. with Judah, He dispersed them to Judah. Of course, we know the story, and I've spoken before of the of the northern tribes of Israel being dispersed to Assyria. 
And there's different sets of information. So God says some things to Judah that he doesn't say to uh, northern tribes. And the northern tribes, he says some things that isn't to Judah. So there's some a little bit of a difference, but there's a common thread. Uh, greater judgment on the north, as I understand it, not as, not as severe on the south. Uh, and, and plus, the south did not go into exile until about 140 plus years after the northern tribes went into exile. But this all had to do with covenant loyalty. And it really means that God created this covenant. He expected his human partners to be loyal to it, just as he is loyal to his word as well. And um, covenants had a lot of different forms. And I'm, it really is an extensive subject. I'm not going to be spending enough time really to cover all of the specifics about covenant. But as I researched this, I, I saw different authors and different people having different ideas on ancient covenants and things, but I kind of saw a pattern, and that is that the covenants really had kind of a, you know, ex ancient covenants, I should say, really had a kind of an exchange of titles, there was an introduction, there were the general principles, there were specific stipulations, there was an oath, there were, there were witnesses, and then there was a document created. And that is really the form of the ancient uh Caesarian covenant treaties that nations made with each other or peoples and kings made with each other and also kind of the way God set out the Bible and if we look at the Old Testament we'll notice there's strong covenant language and if we don't understand it from that perspective we will miss a large portion of what the Bible is trying to communicate to us the Bible in the Old Testament is really conveying this covenant language. Uh, most of what is written in the Old, or I should at least say the Torah, came from Moses at Sinai. So this was the covenant books that God uh, made with Israel at that time. Now, in this whole picture of covenant, um, God made different covenants. He made a covenant with Noah, that he wouldn't destroy the world with a flood like he had. He made a covenant uh, with Adam, in a sense, you can look at it that way, that he promised that the serpent, you know, would bite the heel, but that the, the, the seed of the woman would crush the head. So in that, there's a promise that there's going to be a uh, redemption narrative in the story of mankind. So that's, in a sense, kind of a covenant, even though it's a little different. But really, the the covenants in the ancient world come to life when we get to the character of Abraham. And Abraham really follows the traditional historical covenant elements. He's kind of the first one we read about in the Bible. And what we notice is that there's pre-ceremony actions, which is basically God is commanding Abraham to leave his, his nation, his people, into the land that he's promised him. He's going to make him... Uh, you know, he's got a plan. He doesn't even know what the full plan is, but he leaves. But then he uh, basically, once he's into the land, uh, many years later, the, represent the representatives are there, which obviously Abraham himself and then God. And there's a cutting of that covenant sacrifice, which means you lay the bodies of the sacrifices that you've cut in half on either side. And there's a blood obviously is running down through the middle. And part of what you do is you exchange robes, belts, weapons, um, and then there's the walk unto death. And this is following ancient patterns, I, could, I guess you could say it this way. And if you notice that Abraham has a deep sleep after he's passed through, and uh, he's, cut, he's cut the animals, he's divided them, and then he's protecting 
this. And then in the, in the night, he sees, in a horror of great darkness, he sees a lamp going through. And this lamp is God. And really, this walk of death signified that may this happen to me if I break this covenant. So the whole purpose of that was to symbolize that this covenant will not be broken. And if it is broken, it means death. Um, and then there's a pronouncement of blessings and curses. So if you walk in what in what is expected within this covenant document, there's blessings that will happen and there's curses if you break that covenant. And then there's a seal, there's a mark given, and, and, and then exchange of names. And then finally, there's a covenant meal. And in my presentation, I only touched several of these things. And we read a lot of different aspects of this in the Bible. Um, the ones I had chosen were basically the cutting of the covenant, the walk into death, and the covenant meal. Not every aspect of this happened necessarily in Abraham's um, covenant with God, but you see similarities, if I can say it that way. God used something that Abraham understood to make his promise. So, and, and basically, um, Abraham, you know, he makes that promise. God reveals all those things to him. And one of the greatest things, I think, symbols of that covenant that God gave to him was when Mel uh, Sadiq, which is a... Um, you know, Melek is king, Sadiq is righteousness. So Melek Sadiq is is the king of righteousness. Now that's an ancient Canaanite. Um, but basically king of righteousness, we know him as Melchizedek. And um, it's it's the righteous king being the scepter. So he's the righteous scepter, the right, righteous king on the earth. And Melchizedek's an interesting character. You have this one little glimpse, but then in Hebrews, it goes into tremendous lengths of who this Melchizedek was. Now, some people speculate he was, uh, you know, Shem. He was this priest, kind of a king priest with no beginning, no end. It was, it's not that it was lineage-based. It was that it was faith-based. You know, it, was, it wasn't in the lineage type of thing. I don't think that's what it, personally, I don't think having studied it, I personally feel that this was the Holy Spirit because according to Hebrews, he's the one who promised to make the priest after his own order. So how does how do you do that when you're dead? Of course you can't, but, but the Holy Spirit is the one who resurrected Jesus from the dead. So he's the one who made him after that priesthood, if I can say it that way. And there's different people with different ideas. I'm not going to divide over this issue, but basically let's recognize there's some uniqueness going on in the story of Melchizedek. And and one of the things he does is he comes out and he meets Abraham with bread and wine. Now, interestingly, in the children of Israel's history, bread and wine has been extremely important. In fact, God always had bread uh, in front of him in the showbread, and there was wine offerings, libation. There was always that type of thing. But this this bread and wine has become an integral part of Jewish history, every meal, uh, at least every Shabbat meal, you know, you had you started with breaking of bread and and the cup, and you bless God for giving the bread and the wine. It's a tradition, uh, traditional Shabbat dinner nowadays, but basically that has continued, and it was really, as I understand, it was really what was going on too with the Last Supper. The Last Supper 
as John records it, and you could, I know there's an argument, it's a 50-50 split, but as John records it, John records specifically that this meal that they were eating was actually before Passover. Not, it was, Jesus was being crucified the days that the lambs were roasted. So the evening meal of after the lambs was the time Jesus was on the cross. So he would have not been eating the Seder. A lot of people want to say he was eating the Seder, but according to John specifically, he he puts that, no, it wasn't there. But in the other Gospels, it's not as clear. And you could per- perhaps somehow, you know, you could justify saying that he was eating the Seder. But anyway, you look at it, and I'm just going to interject this real quick. They were not using the standardized Seder of today. I really wish people would understand that. The ancient, or at least in Jesus' time, they hadn't standardized the Seder really yet. It didn't take place until later that they standardized it and it became this thing. But it's very different than what the Bible described the Seders of old. Um, the the meals of old in, in original was to be eaten in haste and it was with your shoes on. You were supposed to lay down with your staff in your hand and it was a quick meal. It wasn't a long drawn out affair. The satyrs of today take hours sometimes to complete and it really, yeah, sure, the imagery is beautiful and the fulfillments of, of different things perhaps, uh, but I think it's a little skewed because the Seder wasn't exactly kept that way in the Second Temple period. I recognize another point of debate, but it's just a note that I think is worthy of mention. A lot of people take modern Jewish interpretation of that and run with it. And I tend to say, well, I'm not going to be as quick on that because I do recognize, even according to the Bible, the Seder was different. Uh, in the in in the ancient times, but this covenant meal, this bread and wine, became this symbol, and it was this picture that God gave in as covenant relationship of uh, the breaking of the bread and the wine as this community communal thing between God and and man, and part of this again we see the pattern of covenant in Sinai. In Sinai we see again a basic basic pattern of a preamble which is the you know the early part and the first part of deuteronomy is like a prologue historical introduction in in um you know first couple chapters and then there's the ethical stipulations god is demanding the sanctions that god imposes and also the succession arrangements what needs to happen through the generations but if we look at more importantly and this is really what i will speak about more in in what i'm speaking about today versus what i did at at church is the central focus of that covenant was the tabernacle and this is a point that a lot of people miss it's extremely important to understand the pattern that god gave in the tabernacle the tabernacle was the pattern of covenant living now i grew up in a home my father was called uh divinely called if i can say it that way he was directly called he felt when he was ordained in the ministry to preach on the tabernacle and he's done a better job of that than anybody else i've ever heard god really revealed to him the secrets of that covenant living and what the tabernacle represented as related to a covenant believer or i should say even in the new covenant but as a believer how we fit into this building, this tabernacle. But this tabernacle was the central focus of the Sinai Covenant. It was all about uh, getting in back the relationship and to become, if I can say this way, to come into the presence of God. And it was done through 
the work of the tabernacle. And that, that's a central focus. I mean, you, and the interesting thing is you have that which is without the tent. Then you have that which was within the tent or the outer court. And then you have that which is within, I shouldn't say the tent, the outer. There's an outer wall um, and it's made of pure linen. And on the inside of that, you can still see with visible light. You can still deal somewhat in the natural. You bring in a sacrifice in. The first thing you do entering into covenant relationship, if I can say it this way, as you approach God, is you recognize sin. So the first step is we recognize sin. The first thing in the in the tabernacle was that altar, the brazen altar for the sin offerings and for the trespass offerings. It's the first thing we do is we get right with God by way of repentance. We repent and we deal with sin on the outside before we come into the presence of God. We're not in the world. We're not outside of the walls. We're actually within the walls, but we're not within the actual Holy of Holies. So you deal with sin. The next thing you do is the cleansing. There's the laver or the laver. The laver was a, bra- braze, uh, a brass vessel in which you could see reflection. And you washed yourself. There was a cleansing, a sanctification, if I can process, if I can say it that way, that took place without, on the outside as you were getting close to the door. The next thing you did right outside the entrance is you you stripped yourself as a priest. You were disrobed in your tribal gowns were left at the door and your priestly gowns were put on. Not only were your priestly gowns put on, but blood was applied to your forehead, to your thumb, to your big toe, to your ear, and, and you were also anointed with oil, and you were de- declared to be pure before God. So there's a, a total robing that takes place. There's a total preparation, application, cleansing that takes place to come into the presence of God. And then if you, as you move on to the inside, once that has all been done, and listen, if you missed any of those steps, God would strike you dead. This was something that happened we hear the story of Nadab and uh, Abayu. I'm not the greatest in Hebrew, so it's we always say Abayu, but it's uh, it's Abayu probably. So Nadab and Abayu, as they came out, they did something contrary to God's order, and they were struck dead. Fire came out of the altar and struck them dead because they did something out of order. But basically, they then entered inside the inner sanctum of the holy place. And in the holy place, there were three pieces of furniture. There was the uh, candlestick, and there was the showbread table, and there was the altar of incense. Now, this was a three-part setup. Now, the only reason it was a three-part is because the actual presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant was hidden behind a veil. That veil had cherubs on it. And uh, it was woven in different colors, but the the key point being cherubs. Cherubs denote uh, guardianship of the presence of God. They are guarding the way into the presence of God. Now, last or two Sundays ago, as I preached, I discussed the implications of what that means. If you notice in Genesis, you have the Garden of Eden and the cherub is placed at the entrance to protect the way to the tree of life. And we notice that in human existence, the tree of life is actually the uh, tree which of which if a man could take of it, he could live forever. So, And there's all sorts of language in the Bible, including the New Testament, especially the New Testament, speaking about the tree of life and that the way for that is made open through Messiah and that we will eat of that tree 
when we come into the presence of the Lord. That is one of those great mysteries that has been revealed through the pattern of the tabernacle. Interestingly enough, when the temple was built, the same basic pattern existed. But when Jesus died, one of the things that took place is that the veil which separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place was tore and divided, and that the way of access was no longer separated, um, that the way had been prepared for us to enter into true covenant relationship, open covenant relationship with the Almighty, with Father. And I think that is really at the core of what is most important to understand in this whole picture is that Jesus, in his finished work, accomplished, Yeshua, I should say, accomplished all of this um, by, his, by his first coming. He came to atone. He came to forgive so that everyone who looks on him can be saved. The Bible's full of that language. And there is also a coming again. But this was the Sinai pattern. And this existed for hundreds of years, long before there was church or anything like that. This was the covenant relationship that God required from mankind. And he rested on this box called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark just means the container. It's really the container of the covenant. And on top of that was a seat, a mercy seat, and he dwelt between the cherubs on that mercy seat. So in the protection of the cherubs, if I can say it that way. I don't know why God does that thing, but I think it's a reflection of his dwelling place in heaven. We have the same description of cherubs guarding the presence of God, just as we have a picture of cherubs guarding the way to the tree of life. It's the presence of God, the river, the, the central focus coming out of the throne. There's angels all around and, and guarding the access points. But if you notice, God dwells, sits on the covenant. So this whole focus of God is to do that which he has written. He has chosen the books that is written. He has caused through the inspiration of the Spirit for people to write these books and for these books to be the central focus of his whole plan. He could give us more books. He could give us more things. He doesn't need to. We have enough information in the Bible that we have for us to believe and walk in faith and to be received unto him uh, in his existence once once our lives are fully developed and we are in in and ready to to go into his presence so that that is a basic uh pattern now if we look at and, and i'll just say this real quickly if we notice even in revelation you'll see the, the temple that is in heaven moses saw the temple that is in heaven he saw the pattern and he made the earthly tabernacle the pattern after the pattern he saw in the heavenlies so I think it's important to understand that this is part of the blueprint of what God is doing. This is how God is doing it, and this is the plan that he has in place. Now, the Sinai, a lot of people say, well, do I have to keep the laws? Do I have to keep the covenants? No, listen, that's a different discussion for a different time. We do live in the new covenant, and a new covenant uh, is, as is said in Jeremiah 31, is not like the covenant that was made at Sinai. It is a different covenant. There is different conditions. Some of the basic same principles exist, but since we do not have a tabernacle, since we do not have a temple that God has sanctioned, and there, that priesthood no longer has been practicing for over 2,000 years because of it, it has ended a very large portion of what has been said. Now, some people 
Now, there are those who would argue that says that, yes, absolutely, you need to keep the law, especially, uh, as Paul would call them, Judaizers, and, and, and people like that. There's this outlay that, yes, you have to keep the law. You have to keep, that's what shows, you know, that is the, the righteousness that you get is by the obedience you have. And this is the whole debate that Paul really gets into, and we read during Romans and all these other books that he writes, uh, especially Galatians as well, who's, who is confronting people who are demanding that Gentiles especially keep the law, that this is the demand. And he is laying out the, the idea, and, and not just the idea, but the reality, that righteousness is by faith. If righteousness was by the law, then, you know, how, how'd you say it? He basically makes the argument that the law does not bring righteousness. The, the law itself is righteous, but it does not create righteousness because within us, when we are given the righteous law, sin is exposed because of our disobedient nature. So he, he builds the case for the requirement of spiritual regeneration or spiritual birth. And this is really the message of the kingdom. Now, continuing, Jesus, uh, he, he came to usher in this kingdom era. And this kingdom era, if you look in the, in the prophets, you'll see this as somewhat twofold. There's a continuation of the world up until uh, a big culminating battle. And this battle is Gog Magog War, uh, number one. I do believe there's two Gog Magog Wars. The one war is a earthly war, earthly players. The second war is a combination of the, it's all the children of disobedient versus the children of righteousness. So it's the ultimate conflict that includes the heavenly hosts and the forces of darkness but that is at the end of uh, a thousand years now and, and that's again is a different discussion we could get into it but this stuff all ties together but at the end of the day we're focusing on covenant loyalty you know at the end of the day we look is god a trustworthy worthy partner obviously mankind is not mankind is not a trustworthy partner that was tried with the state of israel or not state with the nation of israel rather and it was proven to not be, uh, not to not work. If you just read Jeremiah and the verdict given, Jeremiah says that God gave Israel a bill of divorcement. What? Why is that? What's the purpose of that? The purpose of that is because there was unfaithfulness. There was a lack of faithfulness within Israel towards God. So God gave a bill of divorcement. Now. There's more of a message in this, and that is when we get into the jealousy right and the punishment for that unfaithfulness. The covenant is likened also, and I spoke earlier about the Caesarean covenant, but the covenant is also likened to a marriage covenant. And God married Israel in, in, at Sinai, and they were wayward pursuing other lovers. And you see that picture so often in Hosea and the prophets that, that God likens Israel to a woman who is... Uh, who is out, you know, with other men committing adultery all over the place. And he finally says, you're going to do that. In Hosea, the picture of redemption is laid out very clearly. God is going to redeem. He's going to redeem this person who is out in the world doing all that it wants to do. Uh, or this people. And I know I've spoken previously about the mystery of Ephraim, the mystery of the northern tribes and what all lays out with that. And I'm not really going to get into that here 
just if you just the plain text of what Hosea was trying to show shows that God is going to redeem this people. He's going to redeem those that he's cast off. And there's only one shepherd that can do it. It's Yeshua. And and even another place in the prophets there's this recording that it would seem like Yeshua has failed in his mission. It's failed in his regathering of, of Israel. But then there's a reminder, and I, I can look up the reference, but I just won't choose to because of time. But there's this reference then that no, because God is allowing first the sins of the people to be taken away. So this whole thing comes together. At the end of it all, we will see the hand of God in it. We play our part as the living people on earth, the people that are now alive. It is our generation. It is our time on earth to um, to move the plans of God forward. There will come a point in time where this earthly um, existence as we know it is, will be over. There's not going to be... Um, earth as we know as, as people of God we we know persecution there's coming a point in time when we won't be persecuted there's coming a point in time where everyone will know the Lord there'll be no need if you can say it this way for churches and things like that because everyone will know everyone will know the truth and there will be righteousness the the, the weapons of war will be turned into agricultural implements and people will have abundance the likes of which humanity has never seen and it's in this time that we reign with him for a time. And I liken this to Israel 2.0. This is really Exodus repeated. God delivers his people out of Exodus uh, the second time, out of the world, out of the forces of the world. The second time he delivers them and he, he takes them and he, um, he consummates, if I can say that word, uh, the new covenant with the bride in reality and this is the marriage supper of the lamb and this time it's going to work and we reign with him for a thousand years on earth until all the things that which god has intended to do with this earth is fulfilled and at the end there's one final battle and that is when the children of disobedient uh children of disobedience human and angelic okay all of disobedience is let loose and there's a final conflict between the righteous and the unrighteous. This includes the angels uh, on the good side and the fallen ones on the other. And this is really Armageddon, the picture of Armageddon, and the final, the final picture of that conflict is complete and utter destruction. There is fire that consumes uh, the the earth, and everything burns with with fervent heat. That's a little bit the picture. Some people can say, well, that's first Magog, Micronuclear. I could absolutely see that it being the case as well. But I do believe at the end there is going to be a complete consumption of the earth by fire. and uh, But then we are given a picture of regeneration. Um, there's resurrection at the end of the living and the dead. This is not the resurrection of the saints. This is just the resurrection of the living and the dead. And they come before the Lord to be judged finally for what they've done. And the whole creation is judged. Those are cast into the lake that burns with fire forever. And the others are taken to the new earth where we will live our our eternal uh, existence our eternal state if i can say it that way so there's three states of human history there's the temporal fallen state if i can say it that way there's the millennial state in which we are resurrected and reign with uh, jesus reign with yeshua and then there's the finality of what that leads to which is ultimately that all things are subjected to yeshua messiah 
and that is then folded up and wrapped up and finished and uh, it, it leads then ultimately to Jesus presenting us to the Father and that the Father may be all in all. But at the end of this, what you're going to see is that there's covenant loyalty. God was faithful to his promises. He was faithful to his covenant. He was faithful to his word. And I know there's so many attacks today on the word, uh, trying to paint things of, well, there's just stories and it's just, you know, it's good, good stories and good literature. But no, these words were very specific. These words were very, it paints a very vivid picture. Um, and if we look at, and I'll just briefly touch on it, I'm going to be um, speaking this Sunday, Lord willing, on the book of Daniel. And what you see in Daniel is, and in, in the different of the prophets, when they are given the scroll, and I believe this particular scroll is the whole bit of information. So they're given a scroll to digest uh, what God's plans are. And Ezekiel, it's sweet tasting. He, he, he loves it. He, he eats it, and he's it's good with it. Daniel... Um, Daniel can absolutely not handle it. He cannot. He just, it's, it, it absolutely is, shakes him to the core. And he's not able to, uh, to deal with the reality of what would take place. And then, um, John, the revelator, the same thing. He ate it and it was sweet in his mouth, but then he, he threw it up. It was bitterness in his stomach because it really is a sad picture. It really is. It's not a. It's not a wonderful picture when we think of judgment. When we think of um, how God will judge, it's. It's not that God isn't right. It's not. It isn't that God is unrighteous. It's just. It's a seeing the side of things that we, we don't want to deal with. It's an ugly side. It's a judgment. I don't think anybody likes to see death. Well, this will be death on a scale that we will not know. Uh, never. Or how how is it not? No, we how, this is a scale of death or a type of death that we can't even relate to. It's it's a stomach churning reality that those and it, it really comes down to choice. You know, it comes down to choice. Do we choose to be to to believe in God that He will save us or don't we? And we live with the consequences of it. So that is it for this podcast again. Covenant loyalty so important we need to remember to be loyal to what god has done and also he will be loyal and faithful to his covenant that he gave to the people of faith throughout history god bless you until next time uh hope you have an amazing time and god bless